Um, good evening. Welcome to the LSE for those of you who are from outside it. Uh, welcome to this theatre if you are, whoever you are, whether you're inside or outside it. I'm Tony Travers, uh, Director of British Government at LSE in the Government Department here at the school. And uh, we're here this evening uh, to uh, hear from Matthew Dancona uh, about his new book, which is called In It Together, the inside story of the coalition government. You will have seen on the way in, no doubt, that there is a, uh, a groaning table outside with copies of the book, which uh, can be purchased afterwards and indeed, no doubt, signed by Matthew. Um, and the way we're going to play this... bouncy microphone, a bit noisy. Uh, the way we're going to do this this evening is uh, we'll begin with a conversation here on stage and then open it up to the audience so everybody will get a chance to ask their questions directly about the book, about the coalition government and everything. Um, all I'll say by way of just getting us going is just a very brief biography uh, of Matthew who started his career at Index on Censorship before moving as a trainee to the Times. He then joined the Sunday Telegraph in 1996 as deputy comment editor and subsequently became editor of The Spectator in 2006 from then to 2009, succeeding one Boris Johnson in that role. That's things to sort out at that point. Anyway, uh, he currently writes for the Evening Standard and for the Sunday Telegraph and has just started to write for the New York Times. Uh, in addition to In It Together, Matthew's co-author of two books on Christian theology and has written three novels. Now, uh, I'd just like to begin by sort of uh, a fairly obvious question, really, which is um, the coalition, which was, I mean, the coalition was the first of its kind since the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, the last coalition left office in 1945 uh, after an unusual it was in a coalition that had been created because of the Second World War. And Britain had absolutely no recent tradition of that kind of government. Um, politicians, and particularly in the two major parties, had, uh, in the Labour and Conservative Party, faced each other year in, year out on the expectation that one of them or the other would win outright. And even in 2010, I think it was believed that there had been some discussion amongst academics and others that there might be a coalition. Both parties, as ever, went into the election hoping to win. Now, the experts, the academics and others, who looked at coalition in advance of the election thought that if there was uh, the possibility of a coalition, it would be a tortured process, as in yeah. Europe, and that it would take several days or weeks to hammer out such a coalition. And that uh, you know, the, if there were a coalition agreement, it would be a huge thing and very difficult to negotiate. Now, if we just go back to that period. Um, in a sense, what did you learn about the initial um, issues that were faced by, in no particular order, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, even some of the minority parties, in those fevered days in May uh, 2010? Well, first of all, thank you very much for coming, and thank you, Tony, for uh, this introduction. Um, it's a very good question, and I suppose I'll, uh, I'd like to answer it slightly obliquely by saying that it wasn't the fever days that I found were the really important factor. And one of the things that inspired me to write the book was a discovery I made about 
two days after the coalition had been formed. Um, a very senior member of the, but the recently formed coalition called me at home and said, uh, what's the effect of getting your notebook out? Um, not for use now, but for later. And walked me through an extraordinary story, which was that, in fact, the Tories had known all along, shall we say, I mean, not uh, for, for very long, but certainly during the campaign and a bit before, that they couldn't win an absolute majority. They had fought a campaign publicly on the basis that they thought they were going to, and they'd run a dire party political broadcast during the campaign about the hung party parliament. It didn't work at all. Um, parliament party which, it, predicated on the idea that hung parliaments deliver coalitions which are useless. Um, and throughout the campaign, they briefed quite openly that they expected to win a majority. Um, behind the scenes, there was a totally, um, a totally contradictory parallel process going on. Now, Cameron, having been told of this rather unpleasant piece of information, that they'd gone through the seats and realised they could not win, um, deputed George Osborne, Oliver Letwin and a couple of others to go off and um, see what could be done. And this was partly a textual process, which was to look at the Liberal Democrat manifesto and look at the Tory manifesto and look for the areas of convergence, the areas of divergence, and the areas where things could be fudged or ignored or set aside. And they were quite pleasantly surprised to discover that, in fact, the Cameron party being at that point a sort of moderate, moderate Tory um, Moderate Tory, offering a moderate Tory position, Lib Dems being dominated by the Orange Book Lib Dems, it was not that difficult. And crucially, there was the ideal backdrop, which was an atmosphere of national crisis. Now, whether or not the economy was in quite the desperate straits um, that it seemed to be, we shall perhaps leave to historians. But certainly, uh, the media were convinced that the country was on the brink of financial crisis. And much more importantly for, for this argument, the officials were. In the Treasury, there was absolute desperation that a government be formed and formed quickly. So in those crucial days, the officials were looking very hard at the scenarios that were being presented and were thinking pretty much along the same lines as... I think the media and the outside world that although there was a numerical possibility just about of a ramshackle lib lab and nationalist pact um, it really wasn't there whereas the Tories and the Lib Dems seemed to have just about everything sewn up by the end of day one there was a hiccup um, which happened when Clegg went off to Labour to counter negotiate but the Tories had war-gamed that as well. And it was all to do with AV and what was on offer and the political reform agenda. I think that um, it was never inevitable there was going to be a Conservative Lib Dem coalition, but I think there were very strong uh, forces working towards it, which weren't apparent at the time. When you say that um, Osborne, Lechman and Co. had started to look at where there were areas where there could be... Um, possible deal with them. When did that begin? When did did the penny drop? We're talking about months before the election. 
Um, I mean, there was a process of... Uh, I mean, it was a, a gradual and painful realisation, but there was a, there was a day... Um, I would say we're talking six to eight weeks before the election when they went through every single seat in the land and they couldn't make it work they couldn't get up to the crucial 325 and so it followed from that that they had to get going on this enterprise but it also followed that Cameron couldn't be directly involved which meant that when on the day my book came out he was able to go on Andrew Marr and say I didn't have anything to do with pre-planning the coalition absolutely true and in doing all of this, the, the, the fact that the Conservatives deeply, I mean, you've already hinted at, wanted to win the election outright, of course, but the, there were those inside the Conservative Party, sort of small L liberals, yes. who even on, you know, immediately after the election privately said that actually the coalition would be rather useful to them, yeah. didn't they? That they thought it would be, having the Liberal Democrats inside the government would make it possible to tame the Tory right. I mean, that's a conscious. That's a conscious. It is. I mean, understanding. you have to look at the pedigree of the key players in the in the on the Tory side of the coalition, Major Osborne and so on. They and indeed Letwin, they're all people who were veterans of the uh, of the major years, and they'd seen what happened to a prime minister who was at the mercy of the Tory right. And although you know they they whatever they said to the country after May 2010, they did want to win outright. There was a lot to be said for a stable majority of 70-plus with the Lib Dems compared to, let's say, a majority of 10 or 20, uh, in which, effectively, they would have been governing in coalition with Peter Bone, Bill Cash, um, and the other lovable members of the Tory right who had proved themselves so useful to its electoral prospects in the 92-97 parliament. Um, so in that heady period immediately after the formation of the coalition, I think there was the Rose Garden era, if you, if you want to use the shorthand. I think there was a lot of, uh, of, of very um, understandable, perhaps premature, thinking about what might come from this. Um, not perhaps uh, any form of sort of long-term merger, but a realignment, let's say, of Tory politics that would finally see off the Tory right and locate the, the centre of gravity of Tory politics firmly in the centre. Um, now, that has emphatically not happened, which we'll probably go and talk about, but yeah. uh, at that point, there was, there was a lot of talk of running an, a, a, a packed election in 2015. And were there, serious, were there at the time serious conservative, oh sorry, senior conservatives, senior, senior conservatives who were definitely trying to avoid a coalition, who wanted a minority government? Well, um, relatively few actually. Um, one of the reasons that Chris Grayling um, uh, was not given preferment initially uh, was that he, at one of the early meetings of the, of the, of the senior sort of Tory uh, shadow, still shadow cabinet um, raised definite sort of queries about the wisdom even of having a referendum on AV and by that st stage the Cameroons had drunk the Kool-Aid and didn't want, didn't want to hear this um, they didn't want to hear about a minority government the, the media I have to say was uh, the, the want of a better word the, the Tory press um, was not sold on the coalition and there was a lot of pressure coming upon Cameron not to go into coalition from, if you like, the, you know, the, 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 
the commentary out from editors and so on. But but he knew, I think, he knew what he, at that point he knew precisely what he was doing and he wasn't going to be distracted from it. Um, I mean, just at this point, it's worth mentioning one other thing, which is, as I discovered in the course of my researches, Boris described this great coming together as a, a triumph of the public school system. Now, I think he meant that as a compliment. Um, that's not how everyone has read it, having, having seen it in print. But there is no doubt, and it is... It's it, it simply ridiculous to deny it that once Clegg and Cameron and Osborne and people like them got together in a room and realised, without saying anything, how much they had in common. Unravel that a bit more. Okay, this is well, such an interesting idea because it's clearly been important to the operation of the government subsequently. Yes. It's unravel. Well, this is a sort of an understanding that doesn't require words to be. Yes. I mean, well, let me um, let me rewind a bit by saying that two books that have had phenomenal impact upon me as a writer, The Hack, um, are Namie's The Structure of Politics of the Accession of George III, which was really one of the first books to say that um, politic, politics is as much about interests and groups and factions as it is about ideas, if not more so. And then The Roman Revolution by Syme, which has as its central thesis the idea that all regimes, no matter what their official character, are oligarchies. And both of these texts were very influential for me as I was approaching this period of research and sort of two years of intensive interviewing. Because, to answer your question, um, Clegg and Cameron were in different parties, but they both came from affluent backgrounds. They had both been through the public school and Oxbridge Mill, they had a certain expectation of affluence. Um, they were people of their era in the sense that they had a certain... Uh, they were at ease with modernity, so they were not old-fashioned uh, reactionaries. But at the same time, they, they fitted into a kind of um, barely visible hierarchy. They were beneficiaries, I think, of the the great lie that the class war is over and uh, in that sense because all of this was so unstated apart from Boris who said let the cat out the bag um, they were beneficiaries of, of, of the fact that they were able to see in one another's eyes a, a set of assumptions about how to do business and the, the crucial I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here but the, the crucial locus of power in this government is the Sunday night telephone call between Nick Clegg and Cameron where prior to their official minuted bilateral on Monday they actually hammer everything out. Now I need to say I've never heard one of those telephone calls and very few people have but I bet you that, that the, the fact that those phone calls are still going on even now despite all the tensions all the ruptures, all the anger the fact that those, that those telephone calls still carry on has a lot to do with their mutual sense of background and it, that was one of the things that, that became clear to me in the book writing the book was that not, not, not forming a judgement on it, uh, I mean that's a separate discussion but just as a matter of, of empiricism, background was extremely important in explaining the cohesion of this government So had two rather different people 
Well, imagine if David Davis had won yeah. in 2005. Well, let's say that David... I mean, the, the problem is that the other person was Chris Hewn, so you'd have had not only <laughs> an issue of uh, class, but one also of... Um, Quite. Imprisonment. Um, but, <laughs> which takes it into a slightly different level. Difficult but I mean... the Sunday night phone call. You know, oh, David... Exactly. Because you only get a you get, no, phone call or whatever they get. Um, yeah. uh, in 2005, it was... People have completely forgotten this about David Davis, but he was absolutely assumed to be the runaway successor to Michael Howard. He had 62 MPs signed up. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, being paid in advance to write a uh, snap biography of him. Um, it was all going to happen. And um, indeed, a lot of people who became prominent Cameroons early on were saying it's got to be Davis because only a working-class Tory can sell the modernising agenda, etc., etc. So Davis could have won. He didn't because Cameron destroyed him. I mean, in a series of... Uh, remarkable appearances in 2005 Cameron absolutely slaughtered him and in fact Davis holds his hands up about that you know, he was well beaten in 2005 but I think it, had it been Davis and, and let's say Clegg negotiating in uh, 2010 I think it would have been very different very different and sort of getting ahead of ourselves as you already pointed, pointed to I mean having I mean, this relationship at the core of the coalition all the way through to today does make it startlingly different to the core relationship at the heart of the previous government. Yes. Yes, and um, I mean, one of the things I wanted to achieve in the book was to try and get away from the something which I think all journalists, myself included, are, are prone to, which is to fight the last war. Um, there was a desperate search in the early days of the Cameron leadership for Cameron why did Cameron hate Osborne and why did Osborne hate Cameron? And in fact, they don't and they didn't and they won't, or at least not, not obviously so. And the reason for this is not because they are great guys, but because they are manic students of the um, New Labour years and wanted this era to be different. Now, when the coalition came into sort of being, Cameron and Clegg quite overtly realised that there was a there was an easy, low-hanging fruit in appearing to be a duumvirate getting on, making jokes, at ease in each other's company, um, in sharp contrast with Blair Brown. And that was, I think, the kind of starter motor, if you like, of the coalition. This is going to be different. So all of the things that might have been weaknesses were turned into strengths which was, we haven't won the election, but let's get into bed with the Lib Dems and let's use that to dominate the centre ground, marginalise Labour and the Tory right, and make a big deal of how we are a government that gets on with each other, that is run by two men in reasonable accord, and is nothing like the last, the last lot. That was, the, that was the starting point. I mean, it's not the point we're at now, but that was the starting point in 2010. I mean, but if they thought they could put together, and indeed put together such a deal they did in the early days, they must have known, the Liberal Democrats must have known that um, some of the things they were signing up to, in particular public sector austerity and the desire to cut the deficit, was going to make the government very, very different to anything that had come previously and recently. So they knew that. They, 
Did they know just how far they were going to be facing four or five years, actually, well out into the future beyond this government, of reductions in public spending, holding public spending flat, mm. with all the implications that that meant for their popularity? No, no. Struggle. An interesting um, detail, a footnote, if you like, about the Fixed Term Parliaments Act is that this is often seen as, a, as an imposition by the Lib Dems upon the Tories, another example of Lib Dem constitutional tinkering. In fact, it was Osborne worrying that the Tories would be so unpopular by mid-term that the Lib Dems wouldn't, would want to cut and run. So the fixed-term stuff came from the Tory side. The Lib Dems, I think, thought likewise that the Tories would be the party, as the, part, as all, you know, the mean party, the nasty party, that would soak up all the hatred for the cuts, and it's arguable that they are, the Tories are less popular than they would be without austerity. But, it, but the party that really suffered, as you imply, was the Lib Dems. Now, this was simply lack of experience of government. Um, Clegg, you know, wanted his red box, wanted to have his red box and eat it, if you like. I mean, he wanted to, he quite rightly, in my view, wanted to take a party of protest and turn it into a party of government. But he had no idea, and how could he, of how uh, brutal a process this was. And I think that the first year in government was a process of absolutely violent awakenings as he realised, first of all, what government is like, just the, the basic daily grind of government, you know, getting the tanker to turn just a fraction, and also the, the merciless, pitiless ability of Tories in particular to do anything to stay in power. And I think the AV referendum was, was, an, was a, 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 a moment when the scales fell from his eyes. I mean, the tuition fee debacle was the moment where he realised it's really hard if you've promised one thing and you don't deliver it and you're in government. Not a problem Lib Dems had had to deal with. The AV referendum, uh, where Clegg felt that Cameron had promised not to campaign against him and then campaigned very aggressively against him was the moment where and a number of people I spoke to quite senior people said you know, they in all the Lib Dem side that they had been absolutely startled at the the, the, the speed and brutality with which the Tories turned on a dime on this. They'd been openly quite easy going about AV, even talking in, in private and almost in public uh, Michael Gove, I think, did at one point that you know, AV might be all right. And then when the Tory parliamentary party turned on Cameron and said, not on your nilly, mate, Cameron said, OK, I get it, and turned the whole machinery of central office, all its artillery, onto Clegg personally as the weak link. And that was that. But, um, there was history about what happens to small parties when they get into bed with big parties, Absolutely. wasn't there? And indeed with the Liberals. I mean, had they, had they no sense of how getting a Liberal Party becoming the Liberal Party and Liberal Democrats becoming involved with the Conservatives might end up? I think it was a calculated risk, to be honest. I think it was a wager. I think um, Clegg's view was that the power... I mean, he's like Blair, in, Blair with the Labour Party and on a smaller scale that principled lack of power is pointless. And it had always been his objective to get Labour into power. His mentor in that respect was Ashdown, who had tried very hard in the uh, mid-90s to, to achieve this with Blair, failed. Um, but Clegg 
felt strongly that the Liberals, Lib Dems, had something to offer um, as the guarantor, if you like, in prospective coalition governments. The background being that if you look at the graphs of the main party's claim of the vote since the 50s, it's falling dramatically. It follows from which that there will be other situations like this where parliaments are hung, and it followed from that that sooner or later the Lib Dems would have an opportunity to enter a coalition. And um, this was the opportunity. Now, frankly, for most Lib Dems, it was a horrific opportunity because um, the party that they wanted to enter coalition with was, was Labour. Um, and I think, therefore, in a sense, the most important moment in the, those extraordinary days was Vince Cable saying, I hate the Tories, and that's why it's important that we go into coalition with them, because we can be the anchor, the, the, the party that keeps them humane, just as they are now presenting themselves as the, for future elections as the party that can keep the Tories humane and Labour fiscally competent. Now, this is a totally different um, claim, a totally different offer to the public, to what, say, Charlie Kennedy was offering in, um, in 2005, where he won more seats than collected in 2010. Now, I'm, going to take, I'm going to ask one more question, then open this up to the audience after half an hour with me, which is enough. Um, we've heard a great deal about the Quad, yeah. you know, the famous controlling sort of cabinet within a cabinet that, that runs this uh, coalition. So could you say a bit about that, but also something about the other parts of the government yeah. and how the other members of the government who are not in this elite who are outside that elite how they manage their formal and indeed informal relations. Well one of Clegg's uh, private gripes is that the Whitehall has, has not risen to the challenge uh, in creating structures and procedures for future coalitions. That This is all being left far too much to personal chemistry. Um, the Quad, um, as I'm sure you all know, is the, uh, the, the group of four that meets quite often. It's composed of um, Cameron, George Osborne, Nick Clegg, and Danny Alexander, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Um, in fact, normally there are others there, but those four are the, are the key uh, players. And I suppose the Quad arose from the, the 2010 budget, really. Um, it was so important to have uh, rolling meeting of, the, of those four, that it became the kind of central locus of, of power away from cabinet. Now, officially, at least, um, and for spin terms, the Quad is always mentioned as the, the place where, away from cabinet, key operational decisions are taken. But what was interesting was I found that power was much more dispersed. And I mentioned the Sunday night call. Uh, another example is that quite often Clegg, um, Cam uh, sorry, uh, Cameron, Haig and Osborne go off for a quiet dinner, sometimes completely away from um, government offices. And these meetings are frequently mentioned as places where key decisions are taken. Um, now, two things that are notable about that, that trio is that there's no Lib Dem present and there's no woman that Theresa May, even though she's increasingly being touted as a potential leader, uh, isn't, I mean, it wouldn't even occur to them to have her there. So it's a, it tells you quite a lot about the way the government is, is managed. 
There are, I mean, there are other groups, but it is, it is a very, very exclusive and oligarchic government, this one. It is run by smaller and smaller concentric circles of people taking um, decisions, many of them in, in a highly informal way. It's not safe for government, but at the same time, the structures of coalition, Letwin set up an elaborate series of committees and so on, and most of them have hardly met. Um, why, why did the rest of them put up with this? Well, um, because there is very little else on offer. I mean, they, are, uh, the, the, they don't have the option to get rid of him. Um, they don't have the option to call an election. Um, and they are, most of them, waiting for the recovery to do its work so that they, in their imagination at least, win a, a, a decent majority in 2015. Um, a lot of trust has gone into this, and, a lot, and then a lot of ill feeling. And the history of the Tory party this year in particular has been one of, um, of, of huge tensions between leadership and, um, and, and foot soldiers. Okay, right. Um, not from me. Uh, now, lots of questions immediately, which is good. Usual rule, let's do them one at a time. Short, sharp questions. Um, and try and do short, sharp, short, sharp answers. Try to do them Absolutely. one at a time to start off with. So, gentlemen there... So and then, and then I'll pick up those other hands as we go across, okay? So, yeah. And say who you are if you'd like to. Um, yes, can I ask you, do you think that Cameron's uh, failure to achieve the redrawing of the Boundaries Commission, which was a, res a result of Lib Dem hostility over the AV vote, would prove fatal to the Conservatives' electoral prospects in 2015? And do you think uh, Cameron could have handled the issue differently uh, which would have avoided the Lib Dems uh, scuppering uh, the boundary changes? Well, um, it's a very good question. It, it, it was actually Lord's reform that triggered the, the boundaries review um, problem. And um, I think it, it, it may well lose the election for them, and uh, they know it. And the reason for... Uh, it was an avoidable... It was, a, it, was a, it was an unforced error, let's put it like that. One of the great failures of the Cameron leadership, which has had many um, strengths, has been an absence of absolutely first-rate political intelligence. And the truth is that he and Patrick McLaughlin, who was his chief whip at the time, did not see the um, huge um, opposition to Lord's reform coming down the track from his own backbenchers. Uh, the, the Lord's reform ended in a total disaster, and Clegg, I, I think understandably, felt he had to respond consequence being a boundary review that was worth at least 20 seats to the Tories isn't going ahead. So, you know, answer your question is, is, is yes, and they will. Thank you. Uh, Kate Jenkins, LSE. Okay. Um, the thing that strikes me about the description you give, apart from the point that you make quite rightly that there are no women around, which I suspect may have electoral consequences downstream, but the other thing is how little experience of being in government there is. And when one looks at the membership of cabinet committees, um, and at the quad itself. The idea that you've got four people who have never been in any kind of government post before, sitting, discussing things and taking decisions, was that serious? Did it matter? Well, it's becoming almost the norm, isn't it? Um, you know, Blair only held one job in his entire career, which was that of Prime Minister. Um, Gordon only held two. Uh, uh, the, the latter not quite as successful as the former. Um, and this is because t two things seem to be happening, and perhaps this coalition will break the pattern. One is that uh, politics is being professionalised, 
So people um, essentially come out of university, become a researcher, then become a special advisor, then get parachuted into a safe seat, um, do their time on, on the opposition benches and then go into government. Um, and the second phenomenon is that we, we seem to be having, we seem to be favouring long stretches of, 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 of generation-long stretches in office, um, 18 years for the Tories, 13 for Labour. Now, that may well be about to change, which would let Labour win the next election as the polls still, let's never forget, suggest they will. You'd have a lot of people, I think, in, in the first Miliband cabinet who had been in office before. But if they don't, then the, the pattern will repeat itself again and again. And I think that that's a big change in, in the culture of politics. And I share the misgivings of some people about it. And what does that mean for the civil service? I mean, presumably the civil service, it, well, it has implications for the Yes, it does. Um, although, you know, Jeremy Haywood is, um, for fans of uh, Breaking Bad, the Walter White of the uh, civil service. I mean, he is the one who knocks. And he, uh, he is very, very good at uh, being, as he, as he denies, the referee. What, one thing that coalition is quite good for is enabling Whitehall to regroup and reassert itself, and you can see that in a number of situations. That whereas under the the long Thatcher Major era, there was undoubtedly a, a, a Tory politicisation of Whitehall, and then a certain um, revanche under Labour. What's going on now is a bit different now, but, but that is not to say that there haven't been casualties. I mean, a number of permanent secretaries have been chased out by. It is a more political, it is a more political um, civil service. And I think that we're heading towards, because there have been so many uh, crises involving special advisors, we are heading inexorably towards a cabinet system of some sort. Okay, now there's, some, uh, there's one here, but there were some questions there, some hands that were up earlier. So that take those two, one, then two, yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Um, the question I wanted to ask was whether you think Nick Clegg's made quite a big strategic error in not actually having a, a department for himself or a proper post aside from that of, of Deputy Prime Minister. And do you think that's led him to kind of pursue lots of smaller causes within the coalition, like sort of AB and things like that, but things that don't sort of necessarily matter to ordinary voters and what implications that had for the, the Lib Dems in the, in the future elections? Thank you very much. I must say I enjoyed the book enormously, and uh, I might add I'm not your publisher. Um, <laughs> but the cheque is um, in the post. The, uh, again and again in the book, though, um, there are examples of where, Ke uh, where Clegg doesn't get his way and he's, has these tremendous reverses. And uh, speaking as a right-wing nationalist Tory, I, I actually, by the end of the book, I felt... Um, I felt some empathy with the guy just for his sheer tenacity of his ability to pick himself up and dust himself down and uh, yes. get up and do it all over again the following day. I just wondered what your view was on, on whether you think he's been a particularly effective yeah, well, I uh, think you've manager said, in government. You've said it better than I could, really. I mean, he's a, he's a Rasputin figure, isn't he? They do, it doesn't matter how many bullets they pour into his body, he still, he still gets up. Um, no, I agree. I think, I think that... Um, I think history will be kinder to Clegg than... Well, no one's kind to Clegg at the moment. Um, but, it, but I think it will be quite kind to him because he took a huge risk. He's been unbelievably unpopular. You know, he's had um, appalling things happen to him and his family and their home. But he's, he's still there. You know, he's, he's stuck with it. And I think that that tenacity is something that is, is admirable in a, 
in a very um, febrile political culture. Now, you ask a, a related question, which is about whether he's made the, he made the right choice in going for deputy prime minister. The truth is, Tories could not believe their luck. Um, I mean, their view was, what if he asks for a really big department? You know, what do we do? Um, but as they saw it, you know, this is a guy who believes the West Wing. You know, he thinks the West Wing is how politics works. So he comes back in and says, I want to be co-pilot. And they go, OK. Uh, whatever you say, Nick. And I think that as a consequence, he ended up with uh, a notional power and much less than actually he could have had if he'd been Home Secretary or, or Foreign Secretary or something like that. Foreign Secretary would have been tricky because he'd have been out of the country all the time. But um, undoubtedly, the, the, one of the strategic errors the Lib Dems made was, to, was not to embed themselves enough in key departments, including CLEG. The, the one smart thing they did was to insist on two economic ministries. So they had laws succeeded by Danny Alexander at the Treasury and Vince at Biz. And that's, that, has given, that has given them real power. Um, over the key decisions to do with the economy. And, they ha- and there's a long chapter in the book about last year and the omnishambles and the budget. And there's no doubt that they were in there fighting very hard for their agenda. And, and they won on some points. OK, I'll come around with a woman here who's been waiting a while, and then I'll come back to him. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I've just... Um, there's been a lot of talk about... Um, whether Cameron should have just formed a minority government um, and then had another election a few months later with Labour still recovering from, um, you know, electoral uh, defeat. And um, do you think that um, Cameron was quite clever in in roping the Lib Dems into a coalition because it's quite possible now that uh, Lib Dems could face annihilation given their backtracking on tuition fees? and other things? Well, the, the, I think the, the, the second bit not so clever because um, it, it's not clear where the Lib Dem votes will go. Um, I mean, Lib- oh, uh, Phase 1 Cameron, I think, would have had a, a, a perhaps pre-2011, 2012, would have had a good claim to lo- those lost Lib Dem votes. But the uh, evidence on the ground seems to be that the defectors are going to, uh, from, from Clegg again, to... They call them Mil- you know, Miliband Lib Dem votes. I mean, that's where they seem to be going. But on minority government, I think, I think it would have been... I was absolutely baffled by the number of my colleagues who said it was a great idea. And I think that there, that was a kind of pig-headed Tory view that you know, any, form of, can, any form of cooperation with the evil other parties was, um, was just a bad idea. I mean, in fact, minority government... Um, just doesn't just doesn't work. It's a, it's a, it, it means you have to form a coalition every day. It just means that you're governing by whips. It just means that the the, the craziest backbenchers have the most power. It's it's not a, it's no way to, to govern. So giving coalition government a try was self evidently the smart move, I think. George. George Jones, LAC Emeritus. Evening. Uh, you've talked about the top. Can I ask you to tell us how it works lower down inside the departments where ministers of one party have to cooperate with ministers of another? Can you explain the dynamics of the reshuffle in which it looked as if 
Liberal Dem ministers who had been getting on well in their departments were booted out and Clegg had put in, for instance in the Home Office, somebody who was not going to get on with Theresa May. Yeah, it, it, it's such a good question. Unravel who it is. Well, um, to take that very good question backwards, um, Norman Baker, who's been put in instead of Jeremy Brown, is, I think it's fair to say, a less Tory-friendly minister than his, pre than his predecessor, Jeremy Brown, uh, which suggests that um, Clegg is gearing up for the election, frankly, and wants to distance himself from uh, what he sees as a, a, a dangerously right-wing immigration position by Theresa May. This is Clegg speaking. Okay? Um, now, the bigger answer to your question about how they all get on is, is, is impossible to answer in a generality, except to say that if I had to be forced into a generality, I'd say that they all got on fantastically well to start with, because there was a kind of um, oddity in... in in, in meeting people you'd been beating up until recently um, and getting on with them and dining at their homes and um, getting to know their spouses or their partners or whatever and being friends. Um, that wore thin uh, when the differences which remained quite large and at, at the, if you like, the junior ministerial level were often huge. Um, uh, became clear. I mean, I think a very good example of this was Michael Gove and Sarah Tether. Now, in the early days, uh, Gove and Sarah Tether were the odd couple. They, they were inseparable. You know, he would uh, say, no, no, you know, after you, Sarah, no, And it was all very, very, um, very kind of, you know, it was, it was so charming and lovely and everything. And by the time she left, they could barely bear to be in a room together. Um, and I think that was simply because, you know, Michael is a campaigning, revolutionary, uh, public sector reforming uh, Tory, and Sarah's not. And that's the limits of coalition. You cannot, you cannot make two and two equal five. Um, so I think perhaps one of the lessons of this parliament is that you need a bit more uh, creative reshuffling than Cameron has been willing to do. I mean, the absence of reshuffles has caused... This is a, as a footnote, has caused a lot of ill feeling on the back benches because very few people have had a taste of, of, the, of the goodies, relatively. Right. Um, there, and then here. And then there, and then here. And I'll come back Matthew, I'd like to ask about, just very quickly, about Tory modernisation and yeah. sort of how this has shifted with the coalition. Um, so... We heard about how obviously the Tory right were written off at the start, but obviously Nick Bowles's uh, coupon election idea is 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 been and gone now. Yeah. Uh, I just wondered very simply what is the state of the Tory modernisation movement, as it were, in terms of shifting the poles of a party while keeping the party with you uh, as a result of coalition, and how do you think modernisation as a process is going to come out of this in terms of the Tory party shifting? Has coalition been beneficial for that project? Or is it hard to say? Um, well, Tory modernisation, uh, I think, has had some dark days in this coalition. Um, Damien Green put it very well when he said that instead of using the coalition to um, complete the modernisation project, the Tory party contracted out compassion to the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> Not a good idea. Um, however, I'm delighted to see 
organizations like Bright Blue starting, suggesting that there is a second wave of modernization coming. But it's very difficult to keep at modernization. And I think there was an, an astonishing glib belief in the Tory party that modernization was over by and had been the job was complete by 2008 um, and that the crash meant that it was time to stop hugging trees and being nice to minorities um, and, move, and move on to um, getting back to being economists and treating politics as a branch of economics which is such a huge category error however having said all that um, one has to acknowledge um, that Cameron did get the um, Gay Marriage Act through. Uh, not th- with the help of his own party, who went quietly mad over it, but he got it through. And uh, although he, in private, now grumbles a bit and says, oh, was it a mistake? Maybe I regret it. He didn't, he didn't stop it. He could have. And I think 20 years from now, people will forget the rebellion and remember the act. It was a very statesmanlike measure. And so... Whilst the modernisation of the Tory party has stalled, some of the best aspects of it have, have not. And I think that in particular you know, is, 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 an, is an important part of the kind of, if you want, one is auditing the coalition, an important part of its achievements. But one thing, I mean, adding to that though, one thing the coalition has surely done is to mm. make even clearer than would normally have been the case. We all know British political parties are coalitions, but the extraordinary sort of libertarian or social liberal illiberal split in the Conservative yes. Party has been made more visible by being in coalition almost certainly than if it hadn't I think that's true and um, it's, it's one, one of the great uh, ironic legacies of the Thatcher years was which is deep in the blood of the, of the, of the Tory party is a sense that essentially they're right and that there are periods of false consciousness in British history where the public swerves away from their rightness. It's actually amazing how they've adapted the language of the old left. But really, they'll come back. And that if the Tories lose an election, it's because they're not right-wing enough, which is epically similar to what Tony Benn said after the 1983 election, which was, this shows there are 8.5 million socialists in Britain, as opposed to Labour has suffered a crippling defeat, which means it cannot defend the people it's there to, to, to fight for. So I, I do think that, and I think that it is... The trouble with the modernising argument is that it, it is simple and, and doesn't change and just carries on being the same, as, is, as, as, as Blair discovered, as Kinnock discovered. And the Tory party is, is a, new, a new generation of Tory MPs out there. The, um, the Tory phalanx that came in in 2010 are not modernised by temperament, so I don't expect the next... Um, uh, I mean, leave Park Boris, um, difficult, but Park Boris, um, <laughs> I don't expect the next leader after next leader but one to be a moderniser. I mean, I think that, that uh, the kind of centre-right position that I advance in my columns is not by any means the centre of gravity of the party. Okay. Right. right. Could you say, <coughs> say a few words on um, David Cameron's approach to the uh, European... Uh, referendum. It would seem to me that um, that if he goes to Brussels, and if Brussels is not prepared to grant any concessions, because if they were, if it happens, it's going to open up Pandora's box, and what 26 countries going to ask for adjustments? 
So that being the case, the Tory right will say, well, there you go. Um, uh, it has to, it has to be, uh, you know, a, um, a no vote. We have to, we have to exit, as it were. Um, I don't see how he. Uh, I think he's got himself into a corner, perhaps. Or what, is there some kind of plan that we don't know about? I'm sure there's nothing Matthew can't talk about in relation to politics. We have, I don't want to stray too far from the coalition, and I think it's, it's clearly related to the coalition, but yeah. it's not in, innate to it. So do answer it, but. Well, just, I mean, just briefly, I think that because, to relate it to the coalition, he couldn't hold a referendum in the course of this parliament because of the coalition. Therefore, he had to promise one um, in, in a subsequent parliament, the next one up, on the assumption that he had a majority. Um, he also, the crucial point about Cameron is he wants to keep us in. Um, people forget this. I think that the risk, I think you're, you're right to imply that there, are, there is a group of, of MPs for, who will not take yes for an answer. And whatever he... I mean, he could come back and say, you know, we're going to dissolve the social chapter, the euro's going, um, Brussels is going to be reduced to a staff of five and a fax machine, and they'd go, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, 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 that's what they do. And so the idea that this will unite the Tory party is, is not correct. However... I think he and Osborne are right that the, the genie is out of the bottle. There has to be, um, there hasn't been a, a, a resolution of this issue since 75. Uh, clearly, Europe has changed dramatically. Sooner or later, there is going to be one. Very interesting to see, by the way, whether Labour matches the pledge or not. There's a big split on the Labour Party or not. I suppose it could affect future coalition negotiations. It certainly could, yeah. It really could. Now, there was a gentleman there and then here. Okay, and then I'll look to the back with any questions. Thank you. Uh, when will the coalition break up before the next election, and when is it likely to do so? It will, it will break up. I mean, it was interesting because at the beginning there was a lot of speculation about uh, when it would, whether it would go through a series of, of, of a decoupling process that went through phases, as it were. You, you give up your ministerial car on this date and your red box on another and all that sort of thing. Not at all. Um, as far as the Lib Dems are concerned... It goes right up to the date when Parliament is dissolved. Now, the length of the campaign, to my knowledge, has not been settled, but we know the date. It's uh, May the 7th, I think, 20, yeah, 2015. That's in the Act. Um, so a period of time before then, Parliament will be dissolved as usual. Ministers will uh, hand over their ministerial cars and so forth, and um, there will be the normal arrangements that go, uh, government that go on during election campaigns. But what we all expected, which was this kind of winding down, and people talked about the winding down starting you know, not long from now, really, in, in, in the early part of 2014. Not a bit of it. So it's going to be a very interesting process to watch the leadership debates, where people who have been in cabinet the week before start to tear chunks out of each other on, on, on national television. Um, I mean, this, 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 year, this time the debates will be very strange. I mean, what way of thinking about how strange they could be is imagine there were an, an international crisis. Going yes. On. Imagine there were an international crisis going on. Point of absolutely. Because the ministers would be still ministers responsible yep. for the government, and yet, and yet they would be fighting by night a campaign, beating each other up, and by day, yes. I mean, it's it, the truth of, in all of this, and it's one part of it. The reason it's such an, a compelling subject, I find, is that 
it is the Wild West. No one really knows where we're going. Uh, there are precedents for um, coalitions in this country, but as, as Tony hinted earlier, that, that they are so long ago that, that they, there, there is no manual, there is no blueprint. This lot are trying to write a manual as they go. And on the quiet, Labour are watching very carefully in case they have to do a similar act after 2015, which is entirely possible. Um, this, is a, this is a rule-changing, a game-changing um, parliament. It, it may not have uh, a prime minister who will be remembered in the same bracket as Blair or Thatcher, but in terms of political culture and political rules, it's really, really important. Will it affect the way the manifestos are written? Yes. <laughs> I mean, manifestos will have to um, engage in some way with what was hitherto unthinkable. You know, there was a kind of, and God knows, I've, I've been through it a number of times uh, as a journalist, you'd ask a, a, a senior politician in the, the run-up to an election, what would you do if? Um, and certainly Labour and the Tories would say, we're not even prepared to think about that, you know, we're going to win. And that would be it. And it was a kind of jejeune answer, but the, that was the standard answer. You know, we're going to win by an absolute majority, and I'm not even prepared to entertain the question. But now that there has been a coalition, and it's, it appears that it's going to survive, and um, many people who have kind of forgotten that they did this prophesied that it would fall apart, and it hasn't. Um, clearly, coalition is not totally alien to the British system. Therefore, it, it, it will be ridiculous for politicians not to say something about what they would do in, in specific situations and not to do that. And I hope that my trade presses the, uh, the political class hard during the campaign on this and says, you know, no, 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 that's not good enough. What would you do in the following numerical outcome? And says, you know, would you give up the referendum pledge um, to, on Europe, for example? Because it, it enters, the manifesto ceases to have the same iconic status we know that. I mean, that's what coalition forming is all about. It's, I'll give up this for that. Well, what? What would be on the table? And people will de quite rightly demand from their politicians a level of transparency on this that they've never had before. It's interesting. Okay. Um, a, a question. Uh, well, two, two, two questions. Well, a question the point of information. One thing I've, that's amazed me is that there's been hardly any discussion about how rare reshuffles have been in this government. I mean, certainly, you know, since the 60s, I, I can't think even going back further, there's been hardly any reshuffle at all, and no prospect of you know, a major reshuffle. I wonder if you could say something about that, and if it, in fact, springs from the fact that there is a coalition. And the second point of information, um, I understand that this is to be a five-year parliament. I must say, I miss the legislation which put that in. I wonder if you could say about that. And will that happen in future, or is it no parliament may bind its successor? Well, I mean, People will feel bound if this happened once for it to happen again. Well, of course, I mean, you answer your own second question, which is that if someone wants to amend the Fixed Term Parliaments Act 2011, they can. But as things stand, yes, future parliaments will last five years. Now, people may feel that that's too long and uh, a future a future parliament with a majority might um, indeed manage accordingly. But as, as the law stands, we are now committed to five-year periods in an office. Uh, just say about the political background. Well, it was, it was simply a, a, a view that 
the, 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 the uncertainty um, that was generated both to the people, to government, to the markets by the Prime Ministerial prerogative to seek dissolution at any time was, um, was bad. And, um, and, and this is, people like it when politicians give up powers as well. It always goes down well. And um, I think that there was a feeling that, that this, this would give some form to the, uh, to the system, but also specifically that it would lock the Lib Dems and the Tories into a period of time. You know, this is going to be a five-year parliament. Otherwise, the first question that would, on any TV programme or newspaper interview, would have been, how long is this parliament, when is there going to be an election? It would, I mean, it would have become the dominant theme to a dangerous extent. Just briefly to answer your question about reshuffles, um, this is mostly down to Cameron's personality rather than the fact of the coalition. Um, he simply believes that the, the, abs- the sort of fanatical obsession with reshuffles in this country is wrong, that people should be allowed to uh, stay in their jobs for as long as it takes, particularly, particularly at cabinet level. There's been much more churn at lower ministerial level. And I can see the thinking behind that. Um, perhaps governmentally it's a good thing. Politically it's been disastrous because fewer people on the backbenches have had a taste of, of office. So you know, it's been a, a weighing up between politics and government. It's certainly left to the government at the size of the government. Yeah. Um, big, hasn't it? Huge. Because uh, the payroll vote, I think I'm right in saying, is probably the biggest it's yes. ever been. Yes. And for a government committed to efficiency, yes. more votes That's than right. at any time in history it does seem... Well, I mean, inconsistent, inconsistent and you know, they've had to uh, roll back on special advisors and all of those things. But, you know, the, the um, very few people who say they're going to make government leaner do. It's interesting what the difference between opposition and tenure on that front. Mm. Okay. Right. Now, uh, question there. And not, I would like to ah, a question. We'll take this chat here because you've not going to notice them as well. And then... Woman right in the middle at the back. There, the back. I would encourage people at the back to ask questions. And over there, good, good, excellent. So here first. Hi. Um, what difference do you think it would have made either to the Liberal Democrats or the coalition if David Laws had stayed in place? Well, um, not a huge amount. I, I mean, I think he was sort of Osborne's dream sidekick because he wasn't a Tory and therefore there was a sense in which he acted as a human shield for austerity measures. Um, don't forget that, that Osborne had already made a, a run at laws before the election to invite him to defect, so clearly he thought there was some possibility of that happening. It didn't. Um, I think that in another sense, laws would have been better if he'd stayed because he isn't uh, working out quite as well in his new job. Um, both at the cabinet office and at education, there is there are there is friction with the Tory incumbents, um, and uh, Gove and he see eye to eye, but they they they're both cerebral um, evangelical politicians, and you can have too much of a good thing, you know. You, you, you know Jim and Tammy Backer, you know, only one at a time, um, and uh, I think that if he'd stayed as Chief Secretary, that would have been optimal. But on the other hand, they wanted to bring him back in. And he's, a, he's so symbolic to Cameron and Clegg of the commonality. Uh, you know, even in spite of the problems with Gove and with Francis Maud, he is someone who um, personifies the fact that they have something in common. More, so much more than, say, Vince Cable, 
who is a living personification of the fact that they don't. Hi. Um, you mentioned that the Lib Dems had won some quite significant battles in the budget negotiations. I'm just interested to know what, in your opinion, are kind of not just in the last year, but in the whole life of the Parliament, what are the biggest battles that the Lib Dems have won, if you like? Because it's not always very easy to tell from the outside, particularly now when both parties are fighting, fighting with each other, falling over themselves to take credit for the raise in the um, personal allowance. Um, on tax, you know, what, what actually are the things that have happened differently that would not have happened if the Lib Dems hadn't been in government? Well, I think that the personal allowance uh, is, is a very good example of, of something that, that, that was fundamentally a Lib Dem preoccupation, which by hammering away, uh, they, they've kept at the forefront of, of, of budgets and autumn statements. The last year's um, budget is, is a bad example, perhaps, because it was it, it, it spawned the omnishambles, but in the um, in the debates leading up to it, the, the, the Lib Dems played a very important part. Osborne wanted to take the top rate down from 50p to 40p at one go. And I think that absent Clegg, he would have got his way. Um, because Cameron was unsure about doing something which so visibly favoured the rich. But he, is, he thinks very highly of Osborne, and I think Osborne would have got his way eventually. But Clegg said not a chance it's not worth it don't go back to where Labour were because you will then you know, you'll still be able to uh, say it's, high, it's, 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 a more, it's a more punitive tax than the top rate under Labour except for the la- very last months of the Labour government so anyway long-winded way of saying Clegg kept tax, the top rate of tax higher than 40 the interesting thing there is that there was a very uh, Quite subtle, but 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 um, potentially huge grand bargain on the table, which if it had happened would have changed the structure of tax in this country dramatically. I think, which was, Craig said, "Okay, I'm totally against 40p tax, except in one circumstance, which is if you give me, you Osborne, give me the mansion tax, which for the Lib Dems is, is as you know, a holy grail, and a fiscal holy grail anyway, and." Um, Osborne was quite drawn to it because he thinks that income is overtaxed and wealth undertaxed. Um, and there was a sort of brief period where it looked like it might happen. But Cameron just said, not in a million years, because the donors to the Tory party will never accept it and it will lose London for Boris. Now, the first I'm sure is correct, the second I don't know. But um, that was, a, that was a very interesting moment because it told you a great deal about the difference of perspective between Cameron and Osborne in that respect. You know, Cameron is, in the end, a strong South East England Tory, Capti. You know, Osborne, in fact, is a much more modern figure. Terrible on television, you know, not, not, a, not, a, not a probable leader, to put it mildly, um, but, but um, in, in some respects, a much more, a much more, broad, a much broader thinker than Cameron. Cameron was like, not a chance. I'm not going to annoy the donor base with the mansion tax. And as a consequence, the mansion tax just died. I mean, Osborne's a Northern MP. Yes. Yes, that's a good point. Standard tonight has a story uh, saying that he's now considering capital gains tax yes. on high-value properties, which very much it's very, it's very much in that thing. Yeah. Now there was one. Gentleman there, and then 
Um, I wondered uh, how likely this coalition had made future coalitions and also whether the parties now thought that the initial negotiation they had in those kind of, you know, I don't know, pre-Rose Garden where they're really making the hardcore negotiations, that all parties have realised perhaps that is super crucial and meant that later negotiations, were they to happen on new coalitions, would be super, super ferocious. What was the first part of the question? I didn't hear Whether the... coalitions had made future coalitions more or less likely. Um, this coalition. Yes, I see what you mean, yeah. Uh, oh, I think overwhelmingly more, more likely, because for the simple reason that, it, that it's shown um, that coalition can work. But I agree with you that, that um, lessons will be learned from the, uh, the negotiating process. Um, I don't think any party will ever go into, or the main parties will ever go into, um, an election as badly prepared as Labour were. Uh, Labour, to be fair, had been governing, and they'd been governing a long time, and they'd been governing in a period of financial crisis. So they had a fair amount on their minds, but they they really hadn't thought it through, and um, this was a mistake. I don't think actually they realised quite how well they were going to do, um, but certainly from now on, that thought process that the Tories pioneered before the last election, which is what if we don't win, uh, will be absolutely essential and I think I think there will be more coalitions and whether or not th- th- there's a coalition in 2015 is in a sense immaterial um, probably there won't be um, but so what the point is it's now it's now been added to the list of options the list of possibilities of constitutional arrangements that seem to work um, and it certainly works better than having a small majority it's a preferable system of government to that my question is a it's Robert Worcester uh, at uh, My question is really a follow-up to that question, which is, in terms of good governance, what is the solution to the five days in May fiasco, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, in terms of government? The most exhausted people uh, have been hammering away at each other, and then they get into a room, and you think it's ferrets in the sack. Turned out not to be. Yeah. But to plan the next five years on the basis of that list and then stick to it like glue seems to me just not a good way to run a country. Uh, spot on, Bob. I completely agree. And I think that... Um, it's worth... I mean, as your book, I mean, unravelling of it, just how chaotic for those yes. of you who don't... I mean, it, it was an extraordinary five days in London type. Unbelievable. It's going to unravel it just a little bit. And, well, I mean, the point Bob makes that, that these were people who were... Um, Tired to the point of catatonia, really. Um, uh, being invited, uh, compelled, to make decisions that would dominate policy in the next five years, um, not sleeping anyway, uh, and and under a huge pressure to get it all done very quickly. I think that the the mistake was to get the program for government out too quickly. I think that you can have heads of agreement uh, in a relatively short space of time. But then the detailed document came out within, I think, two weeks of the election. And that was totally unnecessary. And people in um, continental countries, where there are coalition systems, were aghast when they heard about this. Why did you feel you had to uh, come up with this very detailed document uh, so quickly? And the answer was that there was a kind of hunger, a media hunger that both sides felt needed to be sated. Um, in fact, that document was uh, was a pretty poor piece of work, and it contained 
one disastrous passage, which was on the NHS, that unlike the manifesto um, and unlike the, the first set of agreements that came out of the coalition talks, it specifically promised no top-down bureaucratic reorganisations of the NHS, which then put Lansley, Andrew Lansley, the new health secretary, into uh, the position that he was automatically breaching a programme for government that he'd had almost no part in. So I agree with Bob. I, mean, I think that you know, one of the lessons is take your time, agree the basics, but, but treat these issues with the gravity they deserve over, over a period of time. A supplemental then, uh, because you haven't mentioned it, and that is their decision straight away to exclude the civil service entirely from those negotiations. Well, th this um, depends on who you ask on this one, actually. I mean, um, the view of the Cameroons is that O'Donnell didn't do very much and could have done more. Civil services, you imply, say they were kept out. Uh, I suspect that there will have to be a halfway house of some sort in this because it is crazy to have people at that level of exhaustion trying to draw up detail. They when you have at your fingertips the, the, you know, the best draftsmen and policy makers in the world. That, that's, that's, a, that's a big learning from this, these five years. Isn't the, the speed that the quick, the, the tired people, people who fought a long election campaign, they haven't been to bed uh, on the night of the camps and all of this stuff, it all has to do with the way in which British governments are yes. used to changing, which is you lose and it's the cat and the piano in yes. Downing Street, and that's it. I mean, that's kind of that's the theatricality long before 24 hours. Yes, the way the British did it, and we can, unless you know the Germans take weeks, yes, the Belgians weeks longer. You know, um, these things can be done at different. Speeds. Yes, there is no <coughs> there is no such thing as a transitional period in in, in yeah, the British system. The Americans, of course, have a transitional, but we don't we don't have anything like that. However, I, th I, I agree, I agree, Bob. I think that the, the, um, there, there is a real problem here, which is um, a coalition, a coalition programme for government is a very, very delicate plant, and it was, it was brought together far too roughly and rudely. Um, and next time, if there is next time, which there will be, uh, it needs to be done in a, in a, in a more considered way. Bob Taser and the gentleman behind him. And then more questions? Yes, I can see one more. Robert Hazel from the Constitutional Unit at UCL. As you may know, we also have a book about the coalition. Very good it is too, and much, much footnoted in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we started only the first 18 months, mm. um, and our research reflected very strongly what you said about how harmonious that period was. I wonder if you could say a bit more about how it's worked since. Uh, talk a bit more about 2012 and 2013, uh, whether the tensions significantly worse between the coalition partners, or whether, as we found, slightly to our surprise, when we were interviewing particularly officials, they said that the fiercest disagreements in Whitehall in the first year or so were mainly between ministers of the same party, yes. rather than different Is that still the case? Well, I think it is, um, and I think that even when you're talking about uh, disagree disagreements between Lib Dems and Tories, um, often the root of, of those disagreements is tensions within the respective parties. Um, th this has been a, a, a very, very difficult year for Cameron. Um, you start off with rows over Europe, 
you go to gay marriage, um, back to Europe, uh, there just seem a never-ending series of problems in Parliament. And um, I see today that he's losing the rural vote. There is a deep sense of disquiet within the Tory movement and a sense also that which I personally don't agree with, but, but it's, it's, it, is a, it is a real sentiment. I can't ignore it in the party that um, the UKIP threat represents an, an orga- the risk of an organic split. Now, this is having a, a huge impact on the psychology of the Conservative Party. It really is. And um, it would be bizarre if that was not having, in, in turn, an impact upon um, the dynamics of the, the government. For example, those appalling vans from the Home Office you know, being centre. Now, that would have been unthinkable pre-UKIP um, and precisely the kind of measure that Cameron and Theresa May in their early manifestation as modernisers would have, would, have, would have associated with the Tory past and denounced. Um, but in the, U- the UKIP era, they are... They, I'm glad to say the bands have been dumped now, but they are very much part of the, of the, uh, the Tory party trying to fight back. And, of course, that created tensions with the, um, with, with the Lib Dems. Um, likewise on welfare, um, Osborne has warned Clegg to you know, get out of the way on welfare because, as he put it, you know, we're coming at Labour with a big hammer. Now, the Lib Dems just don't see the welfare debate in those terms. So there, there, there are big and significant arguments to be had on that. Um, but I agree with you. I think the real, I think the real tensions are intra-party rather than inter-party, especially on the Tory side. Yeah, well, that is more like previous government. Yes. Gentlemen, Dick Leonard, I'm sure he was right that the instinct of the Liberal Party as a whole would have been regarding the Labour in the last election. Clearly not the instinct of the Labour or the so the question I want to ask you uh, is what difference the actual arithmetic uh, of the, uh, the election result had? Had the Labour Party succeeded in getting a few more votes, so uh, a Labour Liberal politician uh, without uh, the uh, participation of my party members, uh, would, uh, would it have been possible uh, for the, uh, the party uh, to have gone to the government? Well, I think that if, if the if the Labour Party had won a few more seats, then obviously it would have been a very different um, landscape, and it would have been much harder for Clegg to sell his Tory Lib Dem deal to his party. Um, and as I said, you know, the, the key moment was when Vince Cable, who is perhaps the, 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 the vicar of the Labour Party on earth in the Lib Dem party, stood up and said, well, essentially this is what we're going to have to go with. And he, his participation in the coalition has been one of its guy ropes. If you sort of take Ian Duncan Smith and Owen Patterson on the Tory right, you know, at the other end there is, um, there is Vince Cable. Um, I mean, this is it's slightly strays from the point, but there is a question mark about what general elections signal. And 
certainly what a lot of labor, senior Labour figures, including Reid and Blunkett and others, felt was that Labour had lost. Uh, now, the way round that was to say, oh, actually, Gordon Brown lost, and if Gordon goes, people will be fine with it. I'm not sure. I think that had Labour stayed in power after still losing, we're assuming in your scenario that they still have fewer seats than the Tories, I think it would have been very difficult because the one thing that was certain about that very confused election was that Labour had lost it. They hadn't lost it by anything like as big a margin as some Labour Party had feared, but it was clear that it was over. And had they been, as it were, kept alive by a bone marrow transplant, you know, a ventilator had kept the government, I think that the, the, the reaction would have been quite severe, and I think it would have given coalition a very bad name. And I think that the Lib Dems often um, sort of presented as, as, as totally feckless and, and unaware of the real world, sort of, for, you know, Basil Fothering Thomases of, um, of, of, of politics, Hello, trees are not like that, actually, and, and were very practical in the end, which was, we have to go with the Tories. If we're going to go into government, it has to be with the Tories. Uh, I think it would be very difficult. Can you imagine now, to 2013, if Labour was, Labour was still dominating government? I mean, it would, it would have been very difficult after that election, I think. Um, and it would have created a very unstable government, and one in which there was no real answer to um, the, what was that, that had become the central question in political um, discourse, which was the deficit. Um, I, I, I wonder how stable it could have been. It's interesting. It's a very interesting counterfactual. Um, yeah, linked to your comments uh, a moment ago about the divisions within the Tory party, particularly the parliamentary party, um, do you think in the event of a hung parliament next time, that the Conservative Party is psychologically capable of going into another coalition with the Lib Dems. Um, and given that the Lib Dems actually had a vote of the parliamentary and the wider party um, previously, and the Conservatives didn't, and I think a lot of Conservatives think that was a mistake now because it didn't tie people in. Um, you know, given all of those challenges and the unhappiness that, there, uh, that is there, you know, are they... Are they capable of doing it, or you know, is their kind of desire to stay in power the thing that will ultimately win out in that scenario? Um, well, I think it will, but I think that the, the route there is much harder this time. I mean, we're assuming here that, that the 2015 result is broadly similar to 2010 in some shape or form, which I doubt it will be. But let's go with the let's go with the. Um, but you think Labour will win? Well, I, I've, I'm, I'm just not persuaded by... I think at the moment we've, we've suddenly gone from thinking hung parliaments don't happen and coalitions don't happen to uh, thinking they happen all the time. And um, I simply observe that the Labour lead has been pretty stable. And, um, you know, I never underestimate um, Cameron or Osborne. I think Linton Crosby has brought some discipline to the party. But um, nonetheless, you know, there doesn't seem... I can't see, other than the recovery and crucially the recovery meaning something to people as opposed to just a statistic they see on the news I can't see the, the thing that drives them into the arms of the Tory party um, that they didn't have in 2010 however, let's say there is a let's go with the, the, the speculative answer and say um, that the, the result more or less replicates itself well, Cameron has already told Clegg um, 
as I reveal in the book, that um, if he does it again, if we do it again, um, he, Cameron, would have to seek the permission of the Tory party, which was, an, I think, a very uh, much at the heart of your question. And it's a good question because um, part of the, one of his mistakes, I think, Cameron, was not binding them in. I mean, this is, part of modern politics is binding people into your more radical and more controversial decisions not just Clause 4, but um, people forget that, for instance, Hague in 97 or 98, I think, um, had a, a, a ballot of all Tory members, so that they were all, they were all bought into his reforms and changes to the leadership rules and everything like that. I mean, it's, 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 it's standard operating procedure now. And the easiest way to do it is, frankly, just to do it afterwards as a, as a, as a ballot. It's very difficult to overturn the status quo. But nonetheless, he, Cameron would have to do that. Um, and there I think the, the problem would be that the Tory party would feel um, we, can we do five more years of, um, in their eyes, soft peddling it on Europe, immigration, welfare and all these things. Now, um, I do think that the, the Conservative desire for power would win through in the end, but it, it might be a closer run thing this time. Well, indeed. The, the Tory party is also, you know, it, it, its, its relationship with Cameron is now very poor. Um, they've had him since people forget they've had him since December two thousand and five. You know, he's been leader, I think, now longer than Major, and you know, long time. So it, it's beginning to get a bit frayed that relationship. Right. question is as much for Tony as for Matthew, that's okay. Um, and specifically on local government, because it seems that the Conservatives in Westminster are, to some extent, in coalition with increasingly disgruntled Conservatives in local government. And to what extent Matthew and Tony both think that um, the unhappiness that Sir Merrick, for example, has been showing about the cuts to local government finance, to changes in planning, do, do you think that, the, that David Cameron is in for a tougher right with the local government conservatives who are also um, looking to lose more seats uh, I think in May 2014 um, is, that, is, that, is that at all uh, a consideration or is he just focusing on keeping his um, um, parliamentary party together well just my, my brief answer to that would be um, yes I do think that there is trouble ahead um, uh, point two I think that, that they're not that bothered and point three, um, their, I mean the Cameroons, the, the, the Cameroon caucus, their definition of localism is uh, not to concentrate on local government, but to look at schools, um, hospital arrangements, and uh, forms of patient and um, uh, parent empowerment that have nothing, actually nothing to do with town halls. Um, the, the localism that they espouse is is a kind of, you know, a micro version of we believe there's such a thing as society, it's just not the same thing as the state. They're, they're, they're don't, they don't have much time for town halls, which is why, quite reasonably, Tory councillors don't have much time for them. But, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the position. Um, and, and why, you know, Michael Gove's purpose in life is to remove all schools from local authority control. And that, 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 is, that is what he wants to do. That's his mission. I mean, to which I'm kindly asked me and I'm chairing it. I mean I think the, the in terms of you know the question about the coalition and 
Matthew's book, I mean, the, the, I think the difficult, I mean, I think that in the end, it was a sort of mathematical uh, consequence of the things the government had, you know, decided to cap, to reduce the deficit by capping public expenditure largely, capping it rather than cutting it in real terms, really. And then they wanted to protect the NHS, protect schools, protect international development, and then that just meant everything else had to be cut. That included local government. It was devolved to sort of Eric Pickles within government, who you know, undoubtedly has a fascinating style, and um, <laughs> uh, not entirely ineffective, I might add. And um, I think that the... the but in Do you know what they call him in number 10? Go on. Too big to fail. <laughs> 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 right. Right. It's very rude, but it's it is very yes. funny. Um, those sizes. Yes, exactly. Cool. Um, <laughs> but I think the, the, in terms of the future of British politics, and this would be true for any party, damaging your councillor base is damaging your activist base, and that yep. any political party is very, very stupid. And that I think is the you know councillors are the basis of all politics. The more you reduce their number, as the Conservatives have found in the north of England, and Labour now in the rural south, the urban north of the Conservatives, rural south, but uh, Labour, it, you just don't win back. And that, I think, is the consequence. Now, there was one gentleman at the back, and then one other, there was another hand I promised I'm going to do a shirt. And that will have to be it. So we have passed it. Quick, quick question, please. As the next general election approaches, it's obvious, as has been said, that the two parties will move a little apart in talking to the Republicans. But shouldn't this be positively encouraged anyway now? Isn't it, wouldn't it be more helpful to know that that minister who is on television has lived there more time? Not in the form, but the parties themselves should perhaps have a full person. And the two parties will be making more effort to let us know just who is putting the view forward, whether they are from the party that originally had the policy or whether they only put it forward because it came up through the, uh, through the uh, coalition. Will they, they split? Will they, well, fine, we can, will they move apart? But no, but there was a, a very interesting specific point about how they advertise on television, which I'd never thought of. But um, I mean, I do, in column writing, I do try and say the Lib Dem Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Um, but you're right, it would be, it, particularly now, it would be worth having in the Aston underneath on screen, on Newsnight or whatever, um, you know, Lib Dem Home Office Minister. I think that's absolutely right. I agree with that. I think that would be a very intelligent reform. Very good. And um, Yes, I was surprised that the um, Lib Dems supported the idea of intervention in Syria, given, the, of course, the staunch opposition to the Iraq war. So, I mean, I was, and, and so, so, for example, that, that could have been a, a cause of tensions within the coalition if, 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 if Clegg had opposed the idea. So it was just interesting that there was, there was harmony on this issue when maybe, yes. maybe I wouldn't have expected it. Well, it, 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 uh, briefly, because it, it, it's such a, such a fascinating subject, this one. Um, I've devoted a whole chapter to the Libyan crisis. Um, I, I take your point about Syria entirely, but... Um, and one of the most interesting uh, talk to a lot of people involved in, across the Whitehall and um, uh, various wings of government um, and the armed forces. And it was fascinating to hear how in the National Security Council committee meetings um, for Libya, Clegg 
so often painted as an anti-interventionist at the time, and perhaps spun by his own party to keep, to keep his party happy, I don't know, was behind the scenes at least very vigorously in favour of the um, Sarkozy-Cameron plan and getting Obama involved. And people of quite fairly muscular, robust sort of um, people involved in the various agencies were very impressed by him. Um, I think he's a liberal interventionist, actually, in, in, a, in a way that's not too far removed from Blair's Chicago doctrine and the belief that we have a duty to intervene militarily from time to time in, um, in, in places to prevent atrocities. And he believed, he, Clegg believed, like Clegg Cameron, that if there was an intervention, there would be a, a, an absolute bloodbath in, in um, uh, Benghazi. And they say, that's absolutely right. That's a good point. Okay, now we're coming up to half past seven and um, the opportunity for the book signing outside, uh, purchasing the... Um, <laughs> but I'd just like to ask one final question. I mean, we've had this extraordinary period of now three and a half years of coalition government. Do you think, I mean, which politicians, regardless of the reasons why, do you think have been those who've demonstrated themselves as the winners out of this process. I mean, for whatever reason, I mean, burnished their credentials, proved adept at opposing the coalition and done well within the party, you know, like Tim Farron. I mean, yes. Who, who are the people, either inside or outside government, you think are the kind of winners, and if necessary, the odd loser? But who are the kind of politicians? Well, think? actually, I have to say that I think that... Um, Precisely because their stock is very, very low at the moment, it's worth saying that I think the three main players, Cameron, Clegg and Osborne, will be regarded in, 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 in a more preferential way 20 years from now. Because I, I think that the, the whole business of holding this coalition together has been incredibly difficult. And if nothing else, the dog that hasn't barked has been the fracture of the government. And so... I think they, they in, 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 even if Clegg is almost reduced to six, you know, six MPs and Miriam by the end of um, <laughs> the election, in some, in some sense, he, he will have, he will have, he will have done something remarkable. Um, Osborne, I think, is beginning to uh, his share price is rising, and Cameron, as with, famously with the French Revolution, it's too early to say, but um, it is so. Uh, absolutely orthodox at the moment to take all three of them uh, around the market square and kick them. But I feel it would be, you know, uh, it would be um, wrong of me not to just end by saying I think the three of them may come out of the wash a bit, looking a bit shinier than they do at the moment. Okay. Well, and, um, I, I, and also Boris has done quite well. And also Boris. Well, that's a tip for the future then. Uh, right. Um, I want to, before I uh, just ask for a round of applause. I'd like to say that uh, what we're going to do is that Matthew and I will head up the aisle uh, so that he can get to the books before everybody else does. Uh, so if you could just remain seated for a moment or two at the very end uh, while we scuffle up the, uh, up the stairs there and then uh, do join us outside afterwards. Anyway, I'd just like on all our behalf to thank Matthew for coming this evening and for answering so many questions so elegantly in such a short time. Thank you very much. Thank you.